to Psalm 101. Psalm 101. Psalm 101, I entitled Ruling Under God. That is being a leader under God's rulership or leadership. In order to lead, you have to know how to follow. And many leaders that you know, lead and, and they're, they're like, like in a church in particular, especially when you're not in a non-denomination, sometimes pastors think that they, they, that they don't have to give an account to anybody, that there's no one over them, which is furthest from the truth, because we report to God. We, get, we are accountable to God. David became king first in Hebron and then at Jerusalem, and at that time, he inherited a divided land and, some discour- and a discouraged people whose spiritual life was at a low point. Asaph described the situation in Psalm 78, verses 56 through 72. And he named David as being the answer to Israel's problem. You see, everything prospers and fails with leadership. But you see, with, with many of King Saul's officers, they were just, you know, flattering, you know, uh, um, followers who, you know, were basically would, you know, say and do anything uh, for position. They were unable to work with a man like David. And once David was established on the throne in Jerusalem, David had a burning desire that he couldn't quench to bring the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, back to the sanctuary so that God's throne might be near David's throne. His question in verse 2 here, when will you come to me, shows this desire that he had. The Ark had been in the house of Abinadad for many years. Then it was in the house of Obed-Edom after David's aborted attempt to relocate it. Remember when Uzziah reached out to touch it because it was falling from the cart and God killed him. David may have written this psalm early in his reign as king while he was in Jerusalem laying down the standards that he wanted to follow as a leader. David knew that to lead a blameless life, he would need God's help. And that's something that we need to always keep in mind. If we're going to lead a blameless life, we need God's help. This is a lesson here. Psalm 101 is a lesson in leadership. Someone, I read where someone entitled it Leadership 101 because it's one of the basic rules of thumb when it comes to leadership. So again, it, it is a lesson in leadership because here David spells out what is required for successful leadership in the service of God. And King David tells us what his purpose is for this psalm. And he asks for God's help in maintaining righteousness. You see, this short psalm has a, it also, as you read it, it has a, a, a tone of judgment, suggesting that he has a desire not only to preserve the innocent and to protect those who are in need, but also to preserve the reputation of God against the attacks of his enemies, which are many, which we were you know, kind of looking at this morning, you know, in, in our study in the Sermon on the Mount. The outline of this psalm is like this. <clears throat> First of all, We have a determination to praise the Lord in verse 1. There's a determination to behave wisely in verse 2. Third, there's a determination to abstain from wickedness in verses 3 through 5. And fourth, there's a determination to know the difference between righteousness and wickedness in verses 6 through 8. 
The theme of the psalm is a prayer for God, a prayer for help to walk a blameless life, to live with integrity. That takes both our efforts and God's help. The author is David. We can lead blameless lives if we avoid looking at wickedness. We see that in verse 3. Secondly, avoiding evil thoughts, which are perverse ideas, mentioned in verse 4. Third, if we avoid slander, in verse 5, and avoid pride, which is a haughty look, also verse 5. Now, while we're staying away from these kinds of things, we also have to let God's word show us the standards that we're to live by. Psalm 119, 133, the psalmist said, direct my steps by your word. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they, that is the word of God. More to be desired are they, the word of God, than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, that is your words, God, your servant is warned. And it's through the word of God that we are warned. And in keeping them, that is your words, there is great reward. So we eliminate a lot of problems in our life if we would listen to the warnings of the word of God. And we'd experience great reward if we obeyed the word of God. In this psalm, David praises the standards that he intends on using to run his kingdom. To rule his administration. And he's promising himself to follow these standards that he set up here. But as we all know, David didn't totally live up to these high standards himself. Because everybody has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We fail to live up to whatever moral standards we recognize. Even so, David did pretty good. And the standards themselves, they are good. And you know what? They are good forever. And these standards will help anybody in a position of authority, whether it's in a government, whether it's in a business or a home or church or wherever you might be leading. So let's begin now with Psalm 100, verse 1. I'm sorry, Psalm 101, verse 1. David said, I will sing of mercy and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. So David said that he was going to sing about mercy and justice. And David had a good reason to. You see, mercy and justice might be rephrased as gracious justice. Now, I doubt that there's anybody here that can look back over their life who doesn't have a good reason to sing about mercy and justice. That's why we're still here, because of God's mercy and justice. Mercy, which is God's love, And justice, they're good principles for ruling your life. In mercy, the throne will be established. And the one who sits on it in truth will be established. In the tabernacle of David, in Isaiah 16, 5, it reads, Judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. You need mercy and you need justice to lead other people well. Again, whether it's government, whether it's business or church or home. Mercy and justice are safeguards against one another in life. 
That is, justice keeps mercy or love in check so that it isn't wrongly permissive and as a result, harmful. You see, if, if we, we are you know, out of balance on justice, we're going to be short on love. And then that justice can become also uh, harmful. And then love keeps justice or judgment in check so that we don't love too much and then there's no judgment All right. And then that love becomes wrongly cruel and as a result, also harmful. So justice and mercy keeps the balance. That's what David wanted to do. David wanted to see love and justice in his rule. He wanted balance. We need balance so that we're not, you know, lopsided on one side or the other. So mercy and justice are the theme of the psalm. And what follows now is basically David's explanation of what mercy and justice look like. Now, These words don't just apply to government. They're good standards for an honest administration. But these good standards apply to our personal lives as well in how we relate to others. We have to strive for righteous behavior. We have to live it ourselves. We have to be examples, as Paul said, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence and incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you, Titus 2, 7 and 8. But we also need to be merciful, knowing that that people are weak as well as sinful. We need to remember that even God who has a perfect standard of justice, doesn't deal with us, thank God, exactly as we deserve. He's merciful. Thank God for his mercy. David tells us that God hasn't punished us for all of our sins, nor does he deal with us as we deserve. Because of his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. Psalm 103, 10 and 11. Let's look at verse 2 now. David goes on to say, I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me, Lord? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. The next characteristic that David talks about here is personal good character. And he refers to it as behaving wisely. That is, uh, living a blameless life and having a perfect blameless heart. To behave wisely means to act with skill. To act with skill. And the strong form of the word indicates intense determination. David had an intense determination to behave wisely, to lead a blameless life. It wasn't just a passing desire. You know, it's not like one of those feelings we get when we say, you know what, I... You know, I'm going to do this. I just, you know, I I feel like I want to do this. Kind of like a a New Year's resolution. You know, we have this, we're going to start off the New Year right. We're going to do this. And what, two, three weeks later, it, it passes. That wasn't what David was sensing in his heart. He had this intense desire, this intense determination, determination to say, I'm going to behave wisely. I'm going to lead a blameless life. I'm going to have a perfect, that is blameless heart. So again, to behave wisely means to act with skill. The strong form, like I said, of the word indicates this intense determination. It's not just a passing desire or feeling. You see, the thing is, though, David knew, I can't do this on my own. I need God. David knew that he couldn't walk in the perfect way 
in his own strength. So he cries out in verse 2, O Lord, when will you come to me? Jeremiah 10.23 tells us, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. And that's why we need a shepherd to lead the way, to show us the way. And it takes humility to admit that. And if you can't admit that you need God, you know what? You're going to fall. You're going to fail. David's cry to God here for help speaks of the need for the devotional life. We we all need to have a devotional life. A time of reading the word, a time of prayer. And I've said before, this, this isn't legalism. These are moral standards that we are to have because we're Christians. But you know what? This is where a lot of leaders fall short and fail. They don't have a devotional life. We all need to have a devotional life. Time with the Lord alone. The only way to live a blameless life is, life is to have a perfect heart. Those two things go together. The blameless life and the perfect heart, they go together. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, all that's in the heart, the mouth speaks. We read in Mark 7, 21 through 23, Jesus said, from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. But notice Jesus from within, out of the heart of men. That's human nature. Proceed evil thoughts, the human mind. Human action are the adultery, the fornications, and the rest of those things that he had on the list. These are the three forms in which sin appear. Human nature, the human mind, and human action. That's why Solomon warned us in Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all diligence. Because out of it, that is your heart, spring the issues of life. Somebody wrote, all conduct is the outcome of hidden fountains. All words are the expressions of thoughts. The first thing and the main thing is that the hidden fountains of thought and feelings are pure. The source of all of our trouble is the bitterness of heart, the envious feeling, the sudden outbreak of corrupt desire. A merely outward salvation will be of no value. A change of place, a magic formula, a conventional pardon could not touch the root of the mischief. Now, here's something that's really interesting. David talks about blameless moral behavior as being thought to be a natural thing. It's as if David said, you know, this should come natural. You know, what's right and wrong should come natural. In other words, David doesn't go into a long, detailed description about what the definition is of being blameless. So again, this is so totally different from how people look at ethics in our relativistic, relativistic uh, time today. You know, everything's relative. You know, what's wrong to you may not be wrong to me, and what's wrong to me may not be wrong to you. For example, when there's been some questionable behavior, and especially, let's use Washington as an example, because there's questionable behavior every day brought up by both sides of the fence. But when questionable behavior in Washington is brought up, then it goes to some ethics committee. And then that committee, they meet for a week or a month or how about two years to see if the act was wrong. 
and a bunch of so-called specialists, intelligent people, lawyers and, 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 and the kind, they get together to tell us what proper moral behavior should be. But you know what? We know what good moral behavior should be. People should know what's right and what's wrong. And this committee of so-called ethical experts, they tell you in a week or a month or however long it might take them, whether or not the act was wrong, and then a person should know on the, but a, a person should know on the spot. We should know right on the spot. With David, there's none of this moral back and forth baloney. <laughs> David doesn't make excuses for not knowing the right way. We know he didn't always walk in the right way, but if he didn't, he admitted it. He admitted that he was the one who did wrong. He's the one who deviated from the truth. He didn't blame the standards. He didn't blame God. He he didn't blame those things for being unclear. David's goal was to walk with a perfect heart. Verses 3 through 5. David said, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. So not only was David's goal to walk with a blameless heart, but he was, his goal was also to fight against evil as well. You see, when a man's heart is right with God, when a man's heart is in tune with God, when man's heart is beating as one with God's heart, he will reject every wicked thing in sight. Even the slightest sin will bother him. Remember like the time when David secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe? 1 Samuel 24, 4 through 6 says this, Now it happened afterward, that is after he cut off the corner of Saul's robe, that David's heart was troubled because he cut Saul's robe. After he did it, he said, Oh man, I, I shouldn't have done that. He was convicted by his actions. One way of guarding the heart is to guard the eyes. David said, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. That could be TV, depending on what the content is of what you're watching. Pornography, magazines, movies, again, the content. Solomon said in Proverbs 4.25, Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. What this means is to fix the eyes steadily and unswervingly on an object ahead of them, not allow the gaze to turn aside to the right hand or to the left. It simply means keep your eyes in front of you. It means simply look straight in front of you. And what David's command teaches us is is to not allow your gaze to look to the left or to the right. It simply means, again, look straight in front of you. The command teaches us simplicity or aim or principle. Singleness of motive that should, which should be serving the Lord. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look before you, straight right before you. You know, have a singleness of heart, a singleness of motive, and that is, my eyes should be on the Lord, and to serve Him and Him only. Jesus said in Matthew six twenty two, the lamp of the body is the eye. 
And you've probably heard it before. The eye is called the window to the soul. But way too many times, the eyes, the eyes are the most dangerous door to sin. Genesis 3.6, what was it that called Eve, caused Eve to stumble? Her eyes. It says, when the woman saw... And you know, when you, read your, when you read the Bible and you see wor- simple words like that, you know, when the woman saw, that, that's, that's a huge word. Because it tells you she was moved by her senses, by her flesh. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, she took of its fruit and she ate. You see, Eve allowed the outward attractiveness of what she was seeing dictate to her what she was going to do. She allowed her emotions, her feelings, her senses dictate to her her behavior rather than the word of God. God had already told her that they were not, her and her husband were not to eat of that tree. You see, sin appeals to the outward attractiveness. Evil also makes a lot of use of the eye to the door of sin. Be careful on what you allow your eyes to look at. Genesis 39, 7. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and she said, lie with me. Potiphar's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. This means that she let her eyes dwell on what was forbidden. So the temptation began with the eye like so many temptations do. If we let our eyes, you know, focus on the forbidden, you know, just entertain the forbidden, we'll fall into sin. One of the most effective approaches to sin is through the eye. And all you have to do is watch the advertisements on TV. The advertisers know that. You see how they will dress up evil things on TV. And especially alcohol. They make it to look like, man, it's the best thing ever. A lot of young people, well-dressed, partying, having a good time by the beach and wherever else you can. You know, they just dress it up. They never tell you what happens after a night of drinking. They never tell you the sin. They never tell you about the families and the homes and the marriages that are broken up. They never tell you about the accidents people get to and the people they kill behind the alcohol. Satan makes it look so wonderful. If we let our eyes again feast on the, unfor- on the forbidden, we will fall into sin. Guard your eyes if you're going to safeguard your morality, your behavior. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 27, 20, hell and destruction are never full. Notice, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Isn't that the truth? We're always looking for something new. It's just our nature. It's so easy to let our eyes wander. And for men, we need to do like Job, who made a covenant with his eyes. He said in Job 31.1, not to look upon a young woman. The psalmist said in Psalm 119.37, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. Lust is the first step toward sexual sin. 
And sin is the first step toward death, James tells us. It's one thing to see and admire an attractive person. But it is totally something else to look for the, pur- to look for the purpose of lusting in the heart. Jesus said, I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, sin in the heart is not as destructive as sin that's actually committed, but it's the first step toward the act. And you never know where a polluted mind will take you. And remember, God sees everything. God above looks down and, every, at every, and he knows everything we do and he knows the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And he will judge both what we do and what we think. If Eve would have kept her spiritual eyes on God's word, she would have focused on what God said and not the forbidden tree. If Lot's wife would have, would have fixed her eyes straight ahead, as she was told, don't look back. And if she would have fixed her eyes straight ahead, not looking back, she would have become a monument of God's mercy, like her husband Lot, rather than becoming a monument of disobedience and his punishment. After Jesus predicted Peter's death, Peter said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Talking about John. He said, Peter, if I want John to remain till I come, what's that to you? He said, Peter, you just follow me. You keep your eyes on me. That's all you need to worry about. And in this case, Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and he focused them on John and then Jesus rebuked him for it. Because whenever we meddle somewhere else where we shouldn't be or want to look at something or someone other than Jesus Christ, remember Peter's rebuke. We need to look to Jesus. And then at verse 3, there's several shortcomings that are mentioned that David said, I'm going to fight against. First of all, he said, I'm going to fight against faithless men. Look at verse 3. He says, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Faithless behavior means failing to keep the faith. Like breaking agreements. In terms of human agreements, it means being dishonest or trustworthy. When it comes to God, it has to do with being an apostate. Somebody who's turned away from the faith that they once had. David said here, I am not going to allow men of sin to serve with me. David wouldn't have anything to do with those who turned away from the truth and righteousness. Secondly, men of a perverse heart, he was going to have nothing to do with. Look at verse 4. He says, a perverse heart shall depart from me. The word perverse means wicked. But it's also the idea of having turned away from what's known to be good, true, or morally right. It also has the idea of willingly diverting someone or some planned course of action that's good, true, or morally right. We can't have or allow ungodly people to serve in God's house, nor can we keep intimate fellowship with them. Leaders have to reject those who walk in darkness. If you fellowship with the wicked, you will be known as the wicked yourself. You will be known as wicked yourself. Proverbs 25, 5, Solomon said this, Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. 
Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. In other words, a wise leader gets rid of evil workers. The third thing that David said he was going to not deal with is slander. Look at verse 5 again. Verse 5 says, Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. Slander here has to do with things that are said, not things that are done. And it's a reminder of how often in the Psalms, David is concerned about the damaging and even deadly effects of words that are maliciously spoken. And in David's court, man, when he was king, there must have been a lot of this going on. Even though he had and wanted high standards, which probably is true in all government bodies. Look at the things, again, being said by both parties in the White House today. It is, it is such a sad spectacle for so-called intelligent men and women. It's really sad. But again, if you don't know God, and you don't have a righteous and blameless heart, that's all we're going to do. David said he will destroy the slanderer. He's going to destroy those who like to start or spread lies and gossip because he knew all too well how destructive slander was. David wasn't going to stand for it. He wasn't going to put up with those who lied and gossiped because a lot of damage is done to a person or a ministry that we can't con- when we can't control our lips. That's why David said in Psalm 141.3, this is a great instruction. He said, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Another thing David wasn't going to put up with in his administration was pride. Verse 5 again, it says, the one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. This is what we call arrogance thinking that we can handle everything in life by our own selves. We don't need God. We don't need anybody else's help because you know what? We are totally self-sufficient. Paul said not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. He said, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Proverbs 6, 16 through 17 It lists the seven things that God hates. These things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him, A proud look. Pride was at the top of the seven things that God hated the most. Pride. You know, today people really think highly of of this trait, pride. But it's a terrible weakness. You know why? Because it was Satan's sin. Satan thought that he could rule the universe just as well, if not better than God. David said here, I am not going to have the prideful working with me. You know why? The proud person is often independent of God. And that is what Satan tries to get the Christian to do every single day. Don't listen to God's word. Eve, God didn't really, did did God really say that if you ate of the, the forbidden, you would die? Go for it, Eve. You know what? God doesn't want you to, you know, God, God's trying to keep things from you. He doesn't, he doesn't want you to live a, a joyful life and, and, and on and on. And, and, and she just kept listening. Satan was trying to get her to act independent of God. To do her own thing, to be her own God. 
And once he got her to, 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 to follow his, his, his voice, he had her. The proud person is often independent of God. Self-centered, self-sufficient. I don't need God. And the worst consequence of pride is it will keep you out of heaven. The proud person serves only themselves and what they want to do. They have their own agenda. And they expect everybody else to serve them. They often look down on others less than themselves. We and government need to be reminded that nothing is accomplished successfully without God and that no one should be arrogant about their own accomplishments or abilities. Everything is a useless work and, a, and it's a deception if God isn't in it. And these shortcomings that are listed here in verses 3 through 5, they're also mentioned in verses 7 through 8, where David seems to be writing about the wicked of the land and not just in his house, uh, meaning the central government. Let's look at verses 6 through 8 now. David says, My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Early I will destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. David is saying in both sections, verses 3 through 5 and 6 through 8, that he is not going to support nor deal with these kinds of people in his house or in his administration. But just the opposite. He said he's going to destroy all the wicked of the land and I'm going to cut off all evildoers from the city of the Lord. And notice when he's going to do it, verse 8 says, early. Early, in other words, right away. Don't wait. At the very beginning of David's leadership, he would immediately stop anyone's employment if he found them to be unqualified or if they disqualified themselves. You see, Jerusalem was the city of God. Jerusalem was to be a holy city. And David meant to be twice as careful in getting rid of ungodly people in the holy city. And you know what? The church ought to be pure. Its leaders ought to be pure. And the leaders should work hard to keep out all unqualified to serve and to get rid of those who aren't qualified to serve or who disqualify themselves from serving. And they need to do it quickly. Why? Because David knew that standing up for what's right means nothing if evil is, uh, isn't opposed and rejected at the same time. David knew that standing up for what's right means nothing if he doesn't do anything about evil. And if he doesn't reject that evil at the moment. David said here, I intend to drive those out of my government who practice faithlessness, perversity, slander, and arrogance. And I will take them out of any position of power of influence immediately. And that's not all. In place of those who are to be rejected for their faithlessness, David says in verse 6, my eyes are going to be on the faithful of the land. They are the ones that are going to dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. You see, David is looking for faithful and godly men. David wanted to surround himself with good 
people, faithful people, people he could trust and whose walk was blameless. Sometimes when people are in positions of power, you, in your own life experience in the workplace, you, you may have seen this. When people are in positions of power or responsibility, they go to those who they know can get the job done, but they don't ask questions about how they're going to do it. They'll turn a blind eye. Just get it done. Don't give me any details. It's worldly wisdom that says no one can do a job effectively who can't close their eyes and ears to some of the things that are going on around him. It's worldly wisdom to say, you know, you just have to look away and move forward. But you see, a good leader in a good government is one where the high positions are filled with upright people and not dishonest people. And may this be the kind of people that God gives us for our own government and places where we work today, and especially in the church of Jesus Christ. We need people who can do the job done, that's for sure, but, not with, but without compromising. We need the faithful of land to do it. And it's a wise leader who looks for these kind of people and then he puts them in the places of authority. But the sad part of all this is that even though David had these high standards, these wonderful standards, he himself didn't live up to them. David started out well. For the most part, he was a moral man. But in the last years of his reign, they were stained by his own personal sin and increasing violence in his own family and government. And the problem wasn't that David was a bad king or that he had poor moral standards. It was that he was a man, a sinner. And no human being, no matter how good their intentions are, ever lives up to a perfect standard of righteousness. That's why we need God. That's why otherwise good political administrations lean towards corruption in their later years, and it's why old leaders often fail. In closing, but here's the good news. We don't have to fail. We don't have to fail. And you know what? The good news is there's someone who doesn't fail and can never fail because he's Jesus, God's son. God has placed the governing of the whole universe in Christ's hands. Revelation eleven fifteen says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our, kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. But in the meantime, until he is reigning, Jesus, like David, has his eyes on the faithful in the land, and he's looking for those who will serve him now and also dwell with him in glory at the end of time. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? The end times are not going to be days of great faith. Remember, before the flood, only eight people were saved. Billions of people. In the days of Noah, only eight people were saved. Only four people out of Sodom and Gomorrah were saved. And one of them perished on the way. We read passages like 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, the last days, some will depart from the faith 
giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received, received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Now, these passages, they paint a dark picture of the last days, which I believe we're in. And I think we see a lot of this stuff already. Let's not be one of them. The way, the way not to be one of them is by keeping close to Jesus. By fixing your eyes on Jesus and serving Jesus always the best that you can. Father, thank you for this really, really awesome psalm, Lord. Very clear psalm, God. Father, very direct. No hymning, no hawing, no wavering, Lord. No doubt about anything that, that David wrote, Father. That's what's so awesome about God's word. It is clear and precise. It means what it says and it says what it means. No debate. No argument. Just obedience. It's God's way or no way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except by me. And maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But through God's word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, <coughs> he's spoken to you through these standards that David had set. And you know what? It's not just, just for leaders. Leaders are more accountable to these things, to these standards. But it's for every living soul. We're called to a high standard as Christians. But again, we can't do it on our own. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Without him, we can't do it. We can't do anything of lasting value. The worship team is going to lead us in a song right now. If you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, if the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray a simple prayer of faith together.